I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. If a man can command a table, a chair, pen, paper and ink, he can commence his trade as a literary man. So we read on page 298 of this massive, inspiring and wonderful book, Anthony Trollope, to which he might also add, if we all had a book such as this, would that we could all become literary men and women. This wonderful introduction, overview of the novel, has in all of its subtleties, in its laughter, in its humour, in its grave reflection, the line-by-line pleasures of the genre it celebrates. And we are indeed here to celebrate a wonderful expedition that we take up in this book. Um, I myself am a novelist, and Michael writes quite early on in the book that perhaps some of the greatest pleasures of reading novels are there for people who indeed write them themselves. And I can completely attest to the, uh, the, the kind of detailed instruction that the book like this uh, gives writers. But all of us who are here tonight are here because we care about the health and the fate of fiction. And there is something in Michael's project that looking, in looking over the past, he makes way for deliberations and thoughts about the future. So it is my great pleasure simply to introduce our two Michaels this evening, uh, both of whom need no introduction whatsoever. Michael Schmidt, as you know, the author of this wonderful book, Professor of Poetry at the University of Glasgow, Writer-in-Residence at St John's College, Cambridge. He's Managing Director and Editor of Carcanet Press, uh, Editor of PN Review, that literary magazine that always feels to me to be more like the, a kind of, you know, the most robust sort of tutorial or supervision than any other literary magazine I know. He's a poet, he writes fiction himself, a great critical writer of works such as The Ancient Poets, The Story of Poetry, Volumes 1 to 3. He's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. In 2006 was awarded an OBE for his services to poetry. I wonder what distinction he may be awarded for his services to prose after this book. (laughs) Michael Wood, no stranger to any of us here tonight, uh, as the regular film columnist for the London Review of Books, himself a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and the British Academy, until very recently, Professor of Comparative Literature, English Literature at the University of Princeton, editor of a great number of scholarly and critical books about film and literature, including works about Stondahl, Nabokov, Hitchcock, and the American cinema. Gentlemen, welcome. My conception, I guess, of the novel all through the book is that it is a kind of organism, that no novel uh, is an island entire of itself, 
and that they all connect in one way or another, <clears throat> that they, there is a kind of family of novels. The image I use in the preface is that of portraits in Bleak House, you know, on the staircase in Bleak House, illuminated differently by different, different suns and clouds. But uh, they, they all relate to one another. And sometimes somebody in the, in the family breaks the, the crystal and, and uh, just possibly burns down the house, but uh, the house is rebuilt. Uh, so there is, a, there is a connection between books, quite apart from the lives of the novelists themselves. The, one of the things that I labor in the introduction, possibly at too great length, though my editor would say the whole book may be at too great length, is this notion that we all have a different experience of, of reading. Obviously, there is, there is a historical chronology, but the, way in, the order in which we, we meet, say, the Hardy Boys and then Kipling and then ultimately Nabokov uh, will vary. I mean, I'm sure your experience, uh, as someone slightly older than I am, will be different from my experience uh, and, and, indeed, obviously, our, our national backgrounds. Uh, so it's, it is a resource that we mine in different ways, fiction. Interesting. Now, the other thing about the audience, of course, is that um, if it's alive, then it can die. Because uh, novels, uh, the novels been dying since the nineteenth century. Yeah. What, what's your what's your medical view on this? <laughs> well, I, I actually only only accompany the novel on its journey through life up to the year two thousand. So my opinions on the on the later novel are possibly more more tentative. Um, I think it's reinvented itself so often that it will live a good many years yet. I think the centers of fiction probably move with the, uh, with the energies of language. So perhaps they've moved away from, from this country, perhaps they've moved across the sea, perhaps mm. they've moved to Ireland, they've moved to, uh, to the United States, and they've moved beyond that to Australia and Africa, obviously, and uh, there are Caribbean novelists too. So uh, there, there is a sense in which um, the health of the novel depends on the health and the development of the language. There's something, I mean, this, there's a thread that runs through the book, Michael, which, which is, relates to what you're saying, that the novels are inventions. Sometimes they invent things that are not real, and sometimes they invent things that are real, that the real actually needs to be reinvented. Mm. But without invention, there aren't novels, and these inventions take place in language. So it, it is possible, isn't it, that if it's an organism, that as with the, uh, the energies of invention can uh, vary from place to place, like weather. Yes. Well, I mean, isn't what what is that passage in the Peace and Cantos where Pounds celebrates something in the Elizabethan period and then says, and then for two hundred years almost nothing? There can be periods of extreme uh, low voltage. Um, I think uh, when we need an injection of. Of French electricity, perhaps, and there's a lot of French electricity in English fiction, and it goes in both directions, of course, with the novel grid system. Uh, but it is true there there can be periods of very low low energy. I th I got this feeling about the energy question because you begin in a very interesting place with Mandeville's voyages, which is yeah. not where everybody else begins yeah. the history of the novel or the biography of the yeah. novel. I mean, the novel usually begins if you're if you're if you're a stout a stout English. Uh, English scholar, it begins with Defoe in the 18th century as if the French hadn't done anything. Yeah. And if you're a French scholar, it begins with the Princesse de Clèves, uh, forgetting about Japan and, uh, and the tale of Genji, and uh, there was also the Greek novel and whatever else yeah. you might remember. The, there's something wonderful about this beginning. The, the, the mm. novel in English begins with something that's not a novel at all, but some kind of fraud, isn't it? I mean, the, the, <laughs> the Mandeville's voyage. That's right. I think I, I started there because, <clears throat> to my mind, the first English narrator is Sir John Mandeville. 
who goes off, first of all, to Rome and then to the Holy Land and then further afield. And he is invented by an anonymous, as far as we know, Frenchman. Um, but he is an English narrator, and that's why I started there. Also, he's a narrator who, as he goes to Rome, uh, the, the map is more or less recognizable and the cities are more or less in order. But as he goes further afield, he has to invent uh, both the cities that he goes to and the peoples that he sees, you know, the people whose heads grow under their arms and so on, all of them attested to in classical literature. Um, so it, it's all original in the sense that it goes back to origins, but it's also original in the sense that it's unprecedented and invented. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm very taken with this idea because it, 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 makes, it makes the history of the novel, the history of invention, it makes fantasy, genre fiction as legitimate citizens, as highbrow. Uh, literature, since the whole business has to be there, and it makes realism, uh, which which is some of the greatest novels we know, uh, some mild aberration that lasted for a hundred years or so. The, the, and the still lasts, <laughs> I think. Realism is is still with us, and again, realism is invention, isn't it? As well. Mm. So, uh, well, would you like to read the bit you have of, of uh, Mandeville's last words? Where's the last that? words of his book? Here. Oh, okay. Because you were talking about a voice, and I just felt that you caught the idea of the voice, and the voice itself ah. here is quite remarkable. And the travels ends with a blessing and a prayer, and beautiful they are, spoken by a man who abruptly casts off the dusty trappings of the traveling knight and becomes an aging priest, soliciting our prayers for his soul and offering his work and himself to God, invoked in a traditional series of paradoxes. Here is how, before his spirit takes flight, he solicits us in a form whose unmodernized grace is remote in time and intimate in tone and effect. And although that saying for me a paternoster with an Ave Maria, that God forgive me my sins, I make them partners and grant them part of all the good pilgrimages and of all the good deeds that I have done, if any been to his pleasance, and not only of those, but of all that ever I shall do unto my life's end. Wonderful. I'm sorry, but I was unprepared. I hadn't rehearsed my middling. Uh, you, your middling is a bit <laughs> rusty, but it's, it, it, it will do. <laughs> but, but we might continue this thought, though, about invention. So w what are the periods of high invention and of low energy? In the older the period, I guess the, the, the most exciting period <clears throat> is probably the period that includes Fielding and Richardson at the same time, inventing in very different directions. Well, both of them really beginning in parody, um, or beginning in imitation. Um, uh, Richardson beginning in writing letters, um, and then in developing connected letters, and then writing uh, novels out of letters, and fielding in parody of, of the picaresque of, of course, of, of Richardson himself, mm -hmm. and so on. And so um, that's a period of very high and very contrary energy, and there's a kind of uh, dialogue, uh, often a very hostile dialogue, going on between two versions of imagination, one of them very social, if you like, and one of them very intimate and, um, and potentially bourgeois, the Clarissa, the Clarissa model. It's interesting, isn't it, to think, you know, we think, people do talk endlessly about the death of the novel and, 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 and so on, but they also talk about the birth of the novel, and actually, it obviously has as many births as it, as it has yes. deaths, but that, that particular birth is interesting, the 18th century birth, because it, it, there is a sense in English, at least, that people don't know what a novel is, yeah. they know what prose fiction is, and they know what a romance is, they know what history is, but the idea of a novel is sort of up for grabs, so mm. there's, a, there's a, a sense here that Defoe, Fielding, and Richardson, 
are just slugging it out. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And Stern too. That they're also the people sitting there saying, "I'm going to tell you what a novel is. It's one yeah. of these." You know, and it, and the, the those are actually quite different objects. They all have, of course, different um, antecedents. I mean, I think without Cervantes, Fielding wouldn't have. No started, uh, and obviously without the romances, Cervantes wouldn't have started. Uh, without Richardson, probably the French novel wouldn't have got off to the kind right. of, uh, gone in the directions that it went in. And so there is the sense of interchange as well. Yeah. And, I mean, and also, I was always struck at this when people talk about, say, and you, you met, you, at one point I think you're talking about, uh, it's maybe about Nabokov, uh, or some self-conscious narrator, and your question is, as if there had not been self-conscious, complicated narration since the beginning, yeah. it's, it's not as if everybody's straight, a, a straight man until mm. the 20th century and everybody goes meta. It's yeah. been meta for a long time. And that means it's, in a certain sense, uh, Stern and Virginia Woolf are contemporaries. Yes, of course. I mean, they, they've skipped a century between, between yes. them, but they're the, they're the same sorts of things going on. In fact, Stern, in many ways, is even more contemporary. A, he's a plagiarist, of course. He's always, yes. he's always yes. borrowing a, a great chunks of Urquhart's uh, Rabelais and, and chunks of Cervantes as well. But he's also, he's, it's wonderful the way he spatializes his novels. So in, in chapter five or something of, of, of Tristram Shandy, uh, he says to uh, he says to one of his readers who are following him through the narrative, "You haven't been paying attention. You go back three chapters and catch up with us again. We'll wait here for you." And he continues to entertain the other readers while she goes back. And and it's a female reader. The male readers are still here. The male the readers are still here. Been sent back to not reading carefully. They're not reading carefully. Yes, it's very fun. I, I, I was amused, Michael, by your your readings readings of Richardson at the beginning of the chapter. You quote, I, th- I think it's um, I think it's, it's V.S. Pritchard talking about yeah. him being tedious. Yeah. And then in your own voice, you say his tone and his pace are no longer tolerable. And then once you get into Clarissa, you're really enjoying yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Something has happened here to your you uh, you uh, the, the, It seems as if Richardson was off the page, but you got it. Did, did this happen as you were reading, or it happens? I was rereading Clarissa. You can't. I find Clarissa really quite irresistible. I challenge anyone to reread or indeed to read Sir Charles Grandison. Has anyone in this room actually read the whole of Sir Charles Grandison? You see, Jane Austen did, and she, in fact, mm-hmm. dramatized it, didn't she? She did yeah. kind of Proust's screenplay of, of yes. Sir Charles Grandison. <laughs> yes. I, I think that what the book, one of the things the book would like to do is to um, propel the reader back into the novel in the way that the early readers of the novel were in the novel. They did not want to finish the novel. They wanted to stay inside the novel. The, the kind of experience Richardson had when he was writing Clarissa of people being quite sure that it would end happily. How could it end unhappily? And the, the death threats he got when, he, when she finally died. You know, there was this tremendous sense of involvement, engagement. Of course, you have this with Dickens as well. And I think nowadays, given the academic diet that we feed our poor students and so on, there is a sense of having to... You have to finish the novel in order to write your essay on it or in order to, uh, to tick that particular oh, box. Or not necessarily write your essay. But <laughs> not necessarily finish it. Oh, no, no, that's true. <laughs> Well, I think that's one of the great liberties that postmodernism gives us. We don't have to finish things. <laughs> Although I did finish this book, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thinking. I was thinking about. I mean, I, I must say, but with Clarissa, I, I I knew it was supposed to be a great novel, and for that reason, didn't read it. Uh, and, <laughs> didn't and I, read it. I didn't read it. And I had this I had this book on my shelf for a long time. I had a proper modern edition, 
And then one day I found one of the, the eight volumes, little octavo volumes mm. that, that you described. Mm. The thing, it wasn't an original edition. It was sort of a 19th century edition. Mm. But it was such a beautiful book, I couldn't resist reading it. I couldn't resist mm. buying it and then reading it. Once I started reading it, I forgot how long it was. Yeah. I just sort of immersed it. And then I thought it was something like, it was a bit like Pinchers, Mason, and Dixon, where mm. you, read, you read a book not for the plot or the meaning or the imagery, but for the company. Yeah. That's a brilliant that's, way of putting you know, it. The, the, it's just yeah. coming, and you don't want to leave these people. You don't care what happens to them. It's not that interesting. It doesn't mean much. Mm. But you don't yeah. want to leave these people's no. company. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yes. it's, it's sad that he has to kill off Clarissa. She could yes. still be there, couldn't yes, she? she? She could still be there, she being could. pursued. And, yes, and, writing more letters. Yeah. <laughs> there is a thing also I, I wanted to raise. I would, I would also like to know what Kirsty thinks about this. Michael says, says a very interesting thing in the book, which is that he quotes uh, Coleridge uh, saying that poetry uh, or the fantastic requires of us a suspension of disbelief. And Michael says uh, that novels require of us not a suspension of disbelief, but an active uh, form of belief. As we don't have to, as we're the only to stop not believing, we have to actively believe things. And there was an interesting case I was talking to Michael about earlier uh, involving Richardson where the, uh, he got a bishop, Bishop Warburton, to write a preface to Clarissa. And the bishop wrote a very elegant preface. And Richardson wrote a, a polite letter back saying thanks very much for the preface. You say, not quite his, his own words, but the, he said you uh, the thing is you say it's a novel. And I really wish you wouldn't say it's a novel. It's a collection of letters. And then he explained that he didn't mean he wanted people to think it wasn't a novel. He just didn't want them to be told that it was. <laughs> and then he explained that to tell people a novel is a novel, and every reader of novels knows that it's a novel, that's how we read them, but to be told on the page that a novel is a novel uh, destroys what he says is the historical faith with which we read fiction. I thought you were very much on that. Kirsty, what, what do you, what do you well, think I'm also, about that? I'm also intrigued by that idea of... Um, of what you do from the outset, as you, as you talked about in your question, that you loosen this whole concept that many of us are still quite enthralled of what the novel is by getting rid of the Richardson 18th century and giving us something else. So we're sitting there thinking, gosh, Arcadia, yes, it could be a novel, <laughs> yes, and so yes. on. So what the book generally is doing is giving us this much more wide and raggedy, organic definition of the thing itself which brings, you know, the, those of us who are rather stubborn, like myself, who resist that very idea of novel, into the world of the novel. You deliver us straight back into it and, and have us roam about and, and loving it again. I'm very taken, too, with this idea of company because the book itself keeps such... We keep, you know, you're such good company. You're, t you're introducing us to this world is also a marvellous time spent with you, the scholar, the reader. Uh, it's a great pleasure. I do hope you'll review this book. <laughs> but I think, that's, I think that's quite a timely thing perhaps to talk about is this idea of you know, the overview of the novel being now because of course we used to endless scholarly tomes about fiction and the end of fiction and novels and so on but to have a book like this that is so deeply sociable that is so wound up with its subject which in, which in itself is of course a sociable thing uh, that, no, that notion of pleasure I think is key yeah, it's also interesting to think of the novel as a sociable form, since the, the you know the classic academic view since since Walter Benjamin is to think of it as solitary. Storytelling is communal, oral, and short stories are belong to the world of the old communities where people spoke to each other. And novels are by definition things that people lock themselves up with, 
in some private room. I think it's true that we do lock ourselves up. But it, that, I think, is only half a story, isn't yeah, it? So the, the, the first half is you lock yourself away, get totally absorbed. At one point, you say, Michael, reading a novel is like going down the rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. Like Alice just you know, vanishes. Mm -hmm. And then when you come out, you've read, you've read the novel. And it does t take you to another place. But actually, uh, I would say, not, not only because I like talking about these things, but I would say a novel that we don't talk about is not completed. <laughs> right? And that's where company returns. So th there is a life of talking about these things, which is very, actually it's true about poetry and other things too. But reading is in a way private, but it's not really private because you're already thinking about who you will talk to about it and who you will share impressions of it with the other people who read the books and those who haven't read them. Well, that's the, the Clarissa example is a very good one because people did debate about it. Didn't they? There, were, yeah. there was endless speculation, public speculation about Clarissa's fate, and more, more famously, perhaps, endless speculation about the fate of certain Dickens characters when, when they were being serialized. So it was, it was very much a social form. Yeah. I'm also quite interested in this idea, which I think you get it quite often, which is, is not sort of fashionable. It's the academic terms often assume that we, we either believe naively in the, real, in the realist illusion. We believe that people are real and we shan't stop it. And that's what Diderot says about, you quoted Diderot saying about Richardson. When I read Richardson, I want to talk to the characters and stop them doing what they're doing. And there are novels like that. You wish you could get into the novel and say, please don't do that now. Yeah. I feel that about Kafka, for example. Yeah. I feel I know the next page, the, the hero in a Kafka will go to some really stupid. And I want to <laughs> shout at him and say, don't do it. Don't open the window. Uh, so there are novels, and there are novels that are not like that. But the assumption that either we naively believe in this stuff, or that we're really smart and clever about these things, so we are skeptical of everything we know. It's just not true. There's a kind of <laughs> sense in which you can actually be deeply involved in something that you know to be fictitious. So in this sense, I think Richardson actually, I think the Richardson's idea of historical faith is actually wonderfully interesting and actually quite wrong. Mm. I think actually, I, when I read the novels of Milan Kundera or something, he says, I, this novel started on a certain day, I looked at a woman across the road and it made me believe this. I believe in that woman. Mm as much as I believe in, in Clarissa, even though Kondera just told me he made her up. So it's not really about historical faith. Historical faith is only one mode, but it, but it is a real mode. But historical, historical faith is what you have to have when you read uh, Scott, if yes. you read Scott, for yes. example. I think also the question, I mean, it's also true about Jane Austen. You write wonderfully about Jane Austen, I think, because, you know, as everyone knows, there are there are at least two, there are many Jane Austen, but there are two, certainly. One is more or less has to be read straight because she was very serious about the world she lived in. She was a modest person who knew what she was doing. And Charlotte Bronte couldn't stand her because it was too boring, it was too limited and so on. And the other is a kind of demonic satirist who does nothing except rip the whole society apart. <laughs> I mean, I believe in the second one myself, but I mean, the, but you're very balanced about this question. But there is a question of historical faith. The more you believe in those characters... Um, the, the more you get caught up in the reality yeah. of the world. I, I thought this was Jane Austen. When you talk about, like, you talk about the happiness that awaits people at the end of Jane Austen, you say it can seem rather meagre. That sounds like Austen herself. That's like yeah. at the end of Northanger Abbey. She says, you can t the reader will know we're hastening towards felicity because there are only a few pages. <laughs> True. That couldn't be more sort of elaborate and, and self-conscious. Well, Forster had that wonderful passage in his book on the novel about how novels always seem to end just where they should begin, at marriage. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Can I ask where your own project began? Did it begin with the marriage or, or the prenup? <laughs> because there's a great sense of <laughs> you. You're doing, you're doing all kinds of things with time and bringing together authors that we may not necessarily have yeah. thought of as talking to each other. You bring everybody into conversation with each other. Did you actually have any sense of 
chronology when you started out, or did you mess that up as you went along? I had a very strong sense of chronology, and when I got to say someone like Afra Ben, I felt how badly she'd been treated by her own age, which is why I put her with Zora Neale Hurston, who was also equally badly treated by her age, and um, and they seemed to me to belong together thematically as well. So. Um, there were some collocations that that happened uh, after the event. I'd already written about Afra Ben, and then I went back and and, and fed Zora Neale Hurston into her. But I, I I did have a sort of general sense of of a book which was going to be four hundred pages long, uh, and then uh, I lost my way. <laughs> and the way seemed. I mean, I was I was saying to you before. I you I thought I'm almost there, and I thought oh. Shit, Australia! <laughs> and I had, I'd forgotten all about Australia, so, so you had to, excuse me, I didn't need to swear. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. But how did, you, how did you put the groupings together? Did they come gradually or did you... They came how did you collect? Yeah. How did you collect them? So, so that, um, for example, uh, Rushdie does not seem to me to belong with uh, Narayan and people like that. He seems to belong much more with, uh, with Ondaatje and mm-hmm. possibly Atwood. And so where do they belong in terms of their project, really? Mm-hmm. Um, did, your, did your views then change with that kind of interesting method of putting things together? Did your views of certain books or writers alter? Well, I was prepared to dislike people like Bartholomew, and I found myself falling madly in love with Bartholomew. The main, the main alteration occurred... Um, there's a writer that I've hated since I was at Oxford, in fact, and that I continually cursed and... and without reading him, which is the best way, of course, to, to maintain a hatred. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was Martin Amos. And when I read his essays, I, I thought, this man is remarkable, especially the later essays. And then when I read the novels, I thought, I, I have made an error. <laughs> so I possibly over-atone. I'm a bit like a, a Catholic <laughs> convert, because the whole book sort of ends in a kind of pian to Amos. If Those of you who don't like Amos should not read the last chapter. I was going to say you end in high modernist style with a kind of almost sort of mid sentence about Amos. Yeah. The whole project just finishes. Well, it's because he's still writing, isn't he? Mm. So what can one say? Mm. <laughs> I'm terrified. I mean, I'm terrified he might read the book. I'm sure I, I, mean, he will. I mean, all no- all novelists, of course, when when they look in a book like this, will look first in the index to see if they're in it. Aren't they? mm-hmm. Can I tell a horrible story about a, a dreadful misprint that occurred in one of our books? Um, it was a book by Freddie Raphael, and in the index it said. Amos Kingsley, Anus Martin. <laughs> the scanning machine had misread and, and we hadn't proofread quite as attentively as we should. I don't know that he noticed that. I think somebody may have drawn it to his attention. 
Did you? What, this is a, a similar question. What, what was the proportion of reading to rereading? Re- I mean, you wouldn't have started on a book like this if you hadn't already read a lot of novels. On the other hand, you presumably were also a lot of novels that you had not read before you read yeah. this book. So there must be a kind of interesting interaction. Reading, remembering, and new reading. Re-reading, there was re-reading. a tremendous amount of new reading uh, <clears throat> because I've, I've always been a poetry person, and so for 13 years I have steeped myself in fiction. And, and some of the things that I had read already, I trusted my earlier reading, and I discovered that I've made a couple of serious errors in Chandler, for example. Mm. Um, well, one serious error because I say he, he his attitude to chess was very different from Nabokov's, and it wasn't. In fact. <laughs> it wasn't. So, sorry. <laughs> I preempt your, preempt your criticism on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but proportions, I mean, were there lots of, lots of re- yes. new reading? How yes. did you find, how, I mean, how did you know what to read, the new, the new things? Uh, I think I was pointed in various directions by, by particular critics that I followed. Um, and so um, with the 20th century, I was, I was much directed by, by critics. And I think the proportion in the 20th century was much higher than in the 19th. Uh-huh. I, was, I was much better read right up to Lawrence, through Lawrence. Um, but when we came, certainly past the Second World War, I was ignorant. And in American literature, I was especially ignorant. I hadn't properly read Bellow. My greatest, most exciting discovery, I think, was probably E.L. Doctorow. I, I really felt for him in a, in a big way. I did not manage to get my head around Pynchon, so he slightly short No, he doesn't, he doesn't come off too well. No, this. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but Bartholomew gets, gets a lot of love. Yeah. No, that, that one of the things I, I should say, this is not quite a question, but one of the attractive things about the book is that, is that Michael is, is trying, constantly trying in these pages to be more conservative than he is. Uh, we're going to be sensible about this, and we're, go- we're going to join. Uh, we're going to join these slightly stodgy views of B.S. Uh, Pritchett and, and Ford, Maddox Ford, and James Wood, and uh, whoever else, Gorby Dow. And then he can't quite bring himself to do it. It's really quite very attractive. <laughs> that, that, that when, when, when it comes to, he will quote the, these voices, and then he will come across an actual novel that's, that represents this, and he can't resist saying nice things about the novel. <laughs> the novel comes alive in a way in answer against these these, these rather larger critical. <laughs> Well, it seems to me that what you're constantly reminding us of is to look to the novel for the way it's made. To look, I think you say right at the beginning, there's this question of, you know, the, the delight in finding the reasons that the writer may have had for making the choices and the decisions that he or she made. And that sense of the kind of aesthetic of the thing rises way beyond the simple vulgarities of content and... The sort of what the obvious, the obvious stuff of the novel mm-hmm. is uh, set aside, and you're giving us the pleasure of the maidness. I think the maidness is what really matters because <clears throat> there's, there's a, there are a lot of probably attractive novels with attractive characters that have faded away, and there are lots of novels with very unattractive characters, you know, Maul Flanders and so on, that we still read. And why do we read them? Mm-hmm. Because because the novelist had the courage of his or her convictions and uh, followed the integrity of. Of conception, if you like, um, and and I think that's really that's what you look for in a in a great novel um, or a good novel. Words like form and proportion come up mm. a lot in your yeah. overview. That idea of making something carefully and properly and thoroughly, mm. and not just giving over to the dramatic vagaries of the mimetic. Mm. Let us invite questions from the floor. I'm sure you have many. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about your readings of Nabokov and how he constructed his works? How he constructed his work? I, I hadn't read Nabokov when I started this project. And uh, then I, I read 
uh, Lolita, and then I read Pale Fire, and then I read as much of the, other, uh, the rest as I could. I think probably if I had a favorite, not the best novel, of course, by Nabokov, but my favorite would be uh, Laughter in the Dark, mm-hmm. which is one of the most beautifully constructed novels that I've ever read. And, of course, it was originally written in Russian, wasn't it, mm-hmm. and, and translated twice the second Translate time. Translated himself, I think. Yeah, the, the second time, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. He he wrote on cards, and he little cards. Mm-hmm. You can probably answer this question better than I can. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> and understood very clearly what he was going to do, and 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 then did it. But there there is a sense of of hyper design in Nabokov, which I I find very exciting. And I do think the later novels like Ada and so on are, are really impossible to read. Mm-hmm. What I loved uh, the, the interviews with Nabokov are very irritating, as you probably know. Um, but he says one thing. He says, if somebody says that this book is realistic, then you've failed hmm. because realism is not what he's after. And I, I really love that, that notion that you, yeah. you don't strive for the realistic. Yeah. There is that sense, isn't it? I mean, the book is a good, a good teacher of this, that the realistic is actually not a version of the real. It's the opposite of the yes. real. If it's real, it doesn't have to be realistic. Yeah. <laughs> realistic <laughs> is pretending to be real. Um, one of the things I wondered, which is that so many novels come with a foreword and a preface and an introduction and notes um, and I think it alters the way that we read it because we look at it almost as a sort of historical document and I wonder whether um, uh, you have some sympathy with the idea that a novel's a more agreeable reading experience without the introduction if you just go straight to page one mm. um, and, and, and take it from there I, I probably would agree with that notion um, I also believe strongly in, in the teeth possibly of a lot of poets like Jeffrey Hill that I would rather have a modernized text uh, because if you have a modernized text and then the actual orthography and the punctuation and so on, habits of capitalization of nouns and so on, don't get in the way and you can read it as, uh, in, in a sense, in the way that the original reader would have read it who would not have been conscious of all these things. The best example is the Urquhart translation of Rabelais which in the modern library edition is absolutely wonderful and that was almost my most exciting experience when writing the book was was reading reading the Urquhart Rabelais and I remember writing to Danny Weisport about it saying you know had he read it and he re- he said when he was at Cambridge he was a contemporary of Ted Hughes's and Brathwaite's and people like that he said we were all reading it and it, it was our liberation from the movement mm. because of the mm. wonderful invention of the language and so on as mm. a translation too of course. Congratulations on struggling with Sir Charles Grandison. It was Jane Austen's favourite novel. Uh, Should that um, make us reconsider it um, as a a worthwhile challenge? It, It is a worthwhile challenge for a scholar and I think for a student of the century, but for the general lover of fiction, uh, I think it, it could be a worthwhile challenge if that general lover of fiction gets into it. It's the extent of it, apart from anything else, it's such a problem. I love long novels. I'm in the middle of Nausgaard at the moment and, and enjoying the, the whole project. I mean, Clarissa actually ends with a really horrifying conclusion, so the build-up is somehow worth it, whereas Sir Charles Grandison ends in a much more sort of emollient and happy way. I think Richardson had been so stung by the response to Clarissa that he thought we must have a, a happy-ish ending, if not a happy one. Yeah. I, I think there is a sense... There's a sense of adventure about reading novels, and it doesn't really matter how you get the sense of adventure, but you can't really tell until you've started reading something. I mean, we all read things we're supposed to read and are told to read and we have to read and so on, but but the the, the real adventures are not like that. They're, they're the, the books you pick up and start to read and realize you actually haven't stopped. 
you know, that you didn't plan to read any more than the first, but you planned to take a glance. I, I became, for example, I couldn't, for a long time I couldn't read Henry James. I couldn't read the sentences and I couldn't bear the fact they were all being so polite all the time. Yeah. And, then, and then one day I picked up a James, I uh, picked up a story called Jolly Corner, The Beast in the Jungle, and I suddenly fell in love with the sentences. You know, just the shape of the sentences and the fact that this, there was a whole adventure just getting to the end of the sentence. Yeah. <laughs> These sentences that James didn't write, that he dictated mm. to, to a, a, a typist and he, and, and he allowed every possible subordinate clause <laughs> to enter the sentence. And it yeah. is a kind of crazy process, the sort of thing you would never teach in a creative writing program and you wouldn't recommend it to anybody except Henry James. But I find it totally magnetic. But I didn't, I don't think I ever planned that or expected it. Mm. You just had to start doing it and then keep doing it. That notion of dictation is interesting because the other person who dictated enormously long sentences was Milton. And it's funny, you would have thought that dictation would make you yes, concise short, and yes. short, but he wandered up and down and he, his stenographers would knit while he was walking back and <laughs> forth or they would yes. he'd do their nails, whatever they did. But he, they would knit. I thought it was one thing they did. And they would smoke and he would smoke and, uh, and then he would emit another one of his gigantic sentences. It's and, amazing. Uh, wonderful. I'm very glad you mentioned Nasgard. Uh, I'm a psychiatrist, and I was particularly drawn to the mention of biography in the novel, which, strangely, hasn't really come up in the discussion so far, although it's been very enlightening. As far as I see it, the last century particularly was inspired by the psychoanalytic revelations, private conversations in which the unsayable was said, the biographical unsayable. I wonder if you'd like to comment on A, biography, and B, the confessional element, which increasingly creeps in or is asserted in modern novels. Is that entirely true? Um, I mean, there, there, there was another strand of modern fiction which, um, which is Marxizing, which has a very social focus, I don't know. What, what do you think? You're, you're... I, I think, I think um, that what is written and what is not written is also at the heart of many of your questions in this book, too. Yeah. The choices that are made, the inclusions, the occlusions. Yeah. I, I, I actually don't think it's as modern as you think. I mean, I think that what you're saying is true. I mean, with Jane Austen, for example, with Stevenson especially, um, uh, you know, with, um, possibly with Fielding, Certainly with Stern, you have all the, all the modern questions are being raised. Um, possibly the terminology is different. Um, but I, I don't think that the, the modern condition is as modern as we tend to think it is. Um, and uh, Freud said certain things, but as, if you start writing with Freudian analysis in mind, I think your fiction probably um, you know, it turns into cybernetics or something. I, I don't think you can construct characters on theories of psychology um, you, you can use those tools perhaps in analysis, but I don't know, when you think about the tussle in Auden between Marx and Freud, and you, you know, Freud wins out, but Marx still stays there and, and makes all of his personal, more personal concerns very generalized. You know, they're, they're, they're shareable. And I think this notion of, uh, of, of shareability, coming back mm -hmm. to the social issue, uh, social n nature of fiction, um, is, is part of it. In my field, which is philosophy, about the effects on people of um, continual um, immersion in literature. So some think that it might increase your sophistication and ability to understand what's going on in the social world. 
and uh, your insight into characters, whereas others think that um, you might be getting all sorts of strange ideas, Bovaryism, about causality, how the world works, <laughs> and uh, be incited to uh, more emotionality than uh, one should be expressing. So what do you think about the There's the a effects? really stunning passage in, in Standal where Julian, he, he's fallen in love, but he doesn't know how to do anything. And indeed, the woman he's fallen in love with is in love with him, but she doesn't know how to express it. And, and Sandal says, if only they had read French novels. If only they yes, had read yes. novels, they would know how to respond to each other. And I do think <laughs> novels do give you... Um, I mean, I, I remember reading um, uh, uh, Gide when I was youngish, and, and, and it had terrible impact on me. And I remember reading <clears throat> Laura Riding's uh, letters to Michael Roberts when, when he was editing the Faber book of, of Modern Verse, in which, in which he said, you mustn't include emotionally, psychologically confused or distorting poems because they will have a, a distorting effect on the reader and i do believe that it depends on what age you are when you read it lawrence for example i think damaged certain people that i know they they damaged he damaged them because they they read him like scripture rather than like fiction i i think that fiction is a very dangerous it's a very volatile substance as well it, it can it can do bad things I, I, I agree. I, I think it's dangerous, but I suppose, and I'm more optimistic than Michael, I think it's morally neutral uh, or epistemologically neutral or whatever. That is, it will make you better at whatever you're good at. Unless it makes you worse. Including evil. <laughs> right. That is, you will, be, you will become, if you want to be a dictator and a fascist, you'll be a better dictator and a fascist if you read novels than if you don't. They won't alter your track. But you'd have to have a, a little fascist tendency before you read the book. Does your of these major canonical figures find much space for some of the smaller, more popular novelists who were very dominant in their time and provided much of the context for these other figures, but who may have faded from our attention. For example, will there be much in your, in your survey about not just Lawrence, but I don't know, Dornford Yates, Compton McKenzie, Arnold Bennett? Uh, there's a lot about Arnold Bennett. Uh, there's a tiny bit about Compton McKenzie. There's a tremendous amount about um, Peacock because I fell madly in love with Peacock as I was traveling through <laughs> through that century. Th there are quite a few secondary novelists ab about whom there is quite a bit written. I mean, apart from anything else, it's very interesting which novels were very, very successful and therefore changed the directions in which fiction was going. I mean, people like Mrs. Humphrey Ward and so on, whose novels aren't negligible. It's sad that she, I mean, she, was, she called herself Mrs. Humphrey Ward because she was anti-suffragist and, of course... And she was much disliked, wasn't she, by um, by James and others. And she's called Ma Hump, which isn't very very friendly. Um, she did lots of very good things, but she's there along with a number of other of other writers who have faded. And there there are writers there who I think should be dusted down, like Peacock. I mean, Peacock has never been out of circulation, obviously, but he's never really had quite as much fun in the in the bloodstream as he ought to. It's an interesting question, actually. And I, I, I was saying to Michael, I, one of the striking things about this book is how inclusive it is and how many, how many, uh, many people get into it and how wide it is. But it's a very good question because I think we, we, we tend to think the classics are the classics and then the classics remain the classics. We don't read the other authors, but mainly we don't read because they're, they're not in print. So there is, there's a kind of editorial question. There's a kind of collusion <laughs> between academics, between the syllabus and the publishing house, where if you, I remember wanting to teach Arnold Bennett and these other people, they weren't in print. And then there's a TV series of Clayhanger. At that point, all the books come back into print, so you could teach Arnold Bennett again. You could, <laughs> you could the books. So there are interesting um, currents that, that allow books to be read or resurrected thought about, and then there are currents that allow them 
literature disappears. It's a very interesting question. It's true that no, there is no major literature without a minor literature mm-hmm. to hold it up. I mean, none. And indeed, television. I mean, uh, uh, Ford Maddox Ford's uh, uh, value on the bourse has ridden, risen considerably thanks to Parade's End. Um, the effect of that will last, as, as the, the Foresight saga lasted for about eight years, nine years, and now, now nobody reads Goldsworthy anymore. Though Goldsworthy is, again, a, he's a very interesting novelist. Well, Marie Corelli does get a bit of press from me because I think she's not nearly as awful as people say. Uida is, unfortunately. Um, but Marie Corelli, I mean, she had her admirers, and there were some serious admirers. And Henry James wrote quite an appreciative review of one of Marie Corelli's novels. I don't think, I mean, I don't think we would rush to read her, but I, I don't think she's entirely negligible. But you have stuff about thrillers, science fiction, yeah. and you have a whole, cha- whole chapters on genre. Hmm. I wasn't going to, but my editor said I had to. We're about to have a question from a new novelist. And, uh, and a very good one. Thank you, Michael. Um, I was, I was trying I was, to neutralise your question before you asked it. <laughs> it's a tough one. It was, it, was, it was related to that, really, how, how you think um, the commercial receptions of the books you selected for this book, to what sense the selection was informed by the commercial reception, perhaps particularly with the, with the later years you discuss? You mean the commercial success of writers? Yeah, in what, in what way do you think that informed your decisions to choose them? And, and in what way? In what way this is this, this list somehow selected by by the commercial success of the books concerned? I, I I omit a number of writers who have been much more commercially successful than the writers that I choose. Um, and I would have thought people like um, you remember you brought me that enormous novel by Gas. It does get mentioned. It doesn't get read. I'm afraid because it was simply too big and you brought it too late in the day. Uh, <laughs> but. Um, I think a lot of, I mean, I think a lot of the writers there are there not because they've sold well, but because they're good. Though some of them have sold well as well. There's no, it's not necessarily the case that if you sell well, you're not good. You make the point quite early on, too, too, don't you, that you're not interested in any of those novels that, as you put it, cannibalize or imitate. Mm. You're just interested in stuff that feels Mm. new and different and dangerous, perhaps. Well, they, they can cannibalize and imitate if they're being satirical and if they're, if they're sending up a parodic. But uh, if they cannibalize and imitate, because obviously Stern is a tremendous cannibal, isn't he? You, you, you look into his spore and you see all sorts of chunks of undigested Cervantes and <laughs> Rabelais. Sorry, disgusting image, sorry. <laughs> Hi. Um, so I think you took about 12 years to write this book we're celebrating this evening and came to new stuff and reread old stuff and I just wondered if you had settled on a favorite novel for yourself in the 20th century um the the novel that most surprised and thrilled me it would probably be Augie March but I would say for the sake of this evening I would say it was Ragtime by Dr. O which um which Mm. I couldn't get over how astonishing it was and its scope Mm-hmm. in its invention and in its historicity as well. Yeah. It's, it's an amazing picture of the century. And all the issues that it raises are the core issues of American fiction. I, I don't know how he wrote it. He mm-hmm. said he was, sitting, he was staring at a wall and, it, and began to see through it or something. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, uh, Michaels. Um, uh, Michael Schmidt, you, you're somebody I, I always associated with poetry and has really made a reputation as, as a poet and a writer about poet and a publicist of, of poetry. And then you write a big book about novels. I wonder if you had anything to say about whether the, uh, the category of novelists who, also, who are also poets um, has any validity to it, or, or mm-hmm. is that something that came up as you're putting this together? 
that's one of those really difficult questions. Sitting short, close to your left there is a novelist poet in the form of Elaine Feinstein. She's one of the exceptions. There is obviously Stevenson. There is obviously Nabokov. Um, though, no. the, no, but the great, Not but, a poet. But don't you think in in in, in Pale Fire that poem is rather wonderful? Or no. no, okay, fine. <laughs> I've been told often enough that it is. I just assumed you might think it was. Uh, but uh, there are not very many novelist poets. Can you think? Who can you think of? Sure. Lawrence. Uh, oh Lawrence. yes, Lawrence, Lawrence and Hardy, obviously. Lawrence, Lawrence and Hardy. Lawrence and Larkin, of course. <laughs> Kipling. Uh, Kipling. Kipling. Yes. Okay. Hey. Well, then we're, we're keep going. We, 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 yeah. we, can, we can do better. Yeah. And of course, George Eliot wrote poems. Plath. Yeah. Melville. Yes. Mel- yes Emily Bronte. It, yes. Yeah. Oh, good. 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 Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> They're all in my book. In both kinds as well. I'd forgotten about them, yes. I think on that note, we might draw this extremely pleasant discussion to a close to give you time to purchase this wonderful book. I hope my own copy attests to the fact that this isn't just something you read, it's like a room that you live in and are inspired by and take thought and imagination from. It's a terrific, wonderful enterprise and I urge you all to purchase your copy now. Michael Wood and Michael Schmidt, thank you so very much. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.